friends, welcome to episode 14 of the Voices Unheard podcast. Today's episode is a very special one as it touches on so many topics that I'm passionate about, such as mental health, decolonizing international aid, and social change. So it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce you to Daisy Rosales. Daisy is the co founder of Brio a non-profit that works with communities to design well-being and mental health initiatives. When she's not working, she enjoys travel, writing, and browsing the local farmers' markets for inspiration. Daisy is passionate about good food, reconnecting with nature, and gathering friends around the table. Grab yourselves a tea or coffee, and let's go! Hi, Daisy. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, first of all, tell us about your organization, Start Brio, and well, what does it aim to do? So, uh, Brio is a nonprofit based here in the United States, um, and we aim to enable access to contextualized mental health support and well being initiatives through design and collaboration with local community organizations. Um, so, we focused on uh, civil society organizations and leaders based in lower to middle income contexts um, all over the world. Um, and essentially, we work with them in a multi-year partnership model where we are essentially providing leadership support, design support, helping them to imagine what well-being might look like um, in their context, how to solve these really complex um, mental health challenges uh, within their programming, um, to tackle it with their community, and essentially to design a model that they feel a lot of ownership over. And so by the end of our partnership, um, they have something that they're really proud of, that they've demonstrate, uh, that they've demonstrated is effective, and uh, that their community can really use. Wow. Okay. Awesome. What made you want to start the organization? And was there a story behind that? Mm, there are a couple of stories about the inception of, of Brio and how my co-founder, who also happens to be my husband, um, got into oh. this space. Um, for me personally, um, I grew up in San Jose, California, um, where uh, it's you know for many years it's been a place that's represented innovation and diversity and also vast amounts of of inequality, um, lots of yeah, lots of socioeconomic inequality and and changes in terms of this population. And so when I was eight years old, my mom somehow had the foresight to um, take me on a visit to the local homeless shelter. It was a stone's throw away from our house. And um, even at that really young age, I, I came to understand that uh, there are some families who can't afford the things that I had taken for granted. Um, a home, for example, um, education for their kids, uh, various things they wanted to provide. Um, but what was really powerful about that experience when I was eight was at that shelter, I met this girl um, and we played together. We had a lot of fun and um, she kind of became a friend. And essentially at that point, maybe I wouldn't have articulated it this way, but I was like, I want to be a part of something that helps people flourish in really challenging mm. circumstances. Um, and so much of my life story and my career choices have been oriented around that desire, basically trying to find my place locally and globally. Um, and so I think with Brio, um, the journey really started when 
we, through various work and personal connections, got to know several different community organizations based in Latin America, um, a place that my husband has family ties with, and I was able to kind of travel to and had personal friends um, that were involved there, working there. And um, it came to the summer of 2015, after we had been married for a year, uh, we were invited to go visit and spend time with a community organization based in Quito, the capital of Ecuador in South America. And um, we spent a month there. They were like, hey, we could really use some help. We don't take on a lot of volunteers, but you guys seem kind of cool. We'd love to hang out with you. So we actually went and stayed with this community organizer, Alicia, and her husband, Dan, and um, some of the community volunteers that were staying at this house that they had restored in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Quito. And um, during that time, we just kind of, we were like, whatever you want us to do, like we'll help you with and ended up helping with all kinds of things around the house, um, Mm -hmm. getting to know them, just going on outings with them. I mean, really built that friendship and also got to know their community that they love so much. Um, The various challenges that that community faced um, was largely a migrant community coming from um, the provinces in Ecuador, um, strong indigenous identity, um, working class, uh, working in sort of um, informal economy stuff, but just families that uh, struggled to to make ends meet. Um, And so we saw at the time that this kind of civil society organization was making a huge difference in the neighborhood in all directions, you know, negotiating with the mayor for more resources, um, connecting kids to um, different kinds of educational opportunities, providing workforce development. I mean, they were doing everything. And what I really was inspired by with regards to these types of organizations, especially in lower resource contexts, is that um, they have such a holistic view of, of transformation. They're not kind of like, oh, you know, we're a, we're a water organization. We just give water, but, you know, food, health, like well-being, all these other things, we don't do that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. They felt the need to kind of help the whole person and the whole family and the whole community. Um, mm-hmm. And that's essentially why we, when we were thinking about this challenge of global mental health and well-being, what that looks like in contexts um, around the world where, especially when, you know, you're just starting with not very many um, practitioners and not very many um, interventions that are culturally contextualized, um, Mm -hmm. we thought of them and we thought, hey, you know, they were actually talking about mental health and well-being as a major challenge they were running into in their particular context, um, thinking through issues around domestic violence and um, addiction, um, how that was really hurting families, hurting kids. And, um, and they wanted to do something about that too. And so when we started Brio in 2018, we actually reached out to Alicia and Dan. Um, and we mm-hmm. said, knowing you all and what you've talked about with mental health and well-being, have you, have you had any partners, any, any people who've kind of helped you think about what that could look like in your context for the population you serve in a way that would be sustainable for what you're already doing? And they're like, you know, there's all these people who said they would help us, but nobody's helped us. And it's been really hard. Um, And so that's when we said, well, hey, like, you know us, you know um, that we care about you and we understand your organization really well. Is there Mm -hmm. any chance that you would like us to kind of figure out with you how Mm -hmm. this might be done? And they were like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that was our first partnership was with Alicia and Dan in, in Ecuador. And 
Um, mm. I'm happy to say that with some of Dan's addiction counseling training and some contextualization, thinking about stakeholders and all of this process, he mm. was able to train 50 people within the first six months um, who then offered over 2,000 hours of intervention for free mm. um, in the community and kind of have built up that practice that way. And so I think like after that first point, we were just really like, you know, there's there's something to to working with these community organizations. They're mm-hmm. they face a lot of challenges um, many times, but they have a lot of potential as well. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, why do you think there's such a big kind of disconnect between how the mental health systems are set up and people's understanding of mental health versus these communities' understanding and what they actually need to them? Oh, yeah, that's such a big question. Um, first, you know. It, I think it's important to recognize that the field of mental health, um, as it's recognized in the West, whether it's psychology or psychiatry, um, you know, that sort of the medicalized um, mm-hmm. approach to this um, is is part of a, a broader ecosystem, we think, of humanity trying to put language to what does it mean to be able to to flourish and to access your opportunities and to do what matters to you. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about mental health field with all of its diagnoses and, and language around disease and disability, mm-hmm. sometimes that can be helpful depending on the context. Um, but it's really trying to capture this, this broader question of mm-hmm. um, how do we not just survive um, from one day to the next? And, and how do we thrive? And how do we do that in areas where we are facing so many constraints all the time? Is that even mm-hmm. possible? And so I think the disconnect comes a little bit from um, the way in which the field is built around, um, you know, wanting to eliminate disease um, to mm. in thinking about it as we need to, to solve this problem, which, you know, for people who live with mental health challenges, that is a very, very big piece. And it's really mm. important. So we're not discounting that at all. And there's this other side of how do we think about flourishing more holistically? How do we think about it in a community care context? How do we think about it in terms of local language around pain and suffering? Mm. Um, How do we help people build those internal resources to face the very real challenges that they likely will face in these contexts Mm -hmm. and have those resources be within the individual and also between each other? Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, What countries are you currently working in by the way so you mentioned Ecuador what are some of the other ones and is there a reason you kind of decided on these countries yeah yeah you know it's funny when we first started um like I said earlier we felt a lot of personal connection to Latin America um Mm -hmm. and so that's essentially where we started prior to COVID um Mm -hmm. we uh are still continue to work with Alicia and Dan and and have worked with them on multiple different community initiatives Mm -hmm. and our second um pilot uh partnership was in Mexico City um and we were also invited there. So I think, one, it starts with an invitation um, from personal networks, from people we've met who said, hey, I actually want you to come meet my colleagues, talk to my circles about what you're doing, because I think we could really use your help, some partners in thinking about this challenge. And so um, in Mexico City, we spent the summer there uh, while while we were both in school, which is, you know, a, another piece of this. We were in grad school when we started this. And so yeah, we had yeah. a summer and um, were invited to 
Mexico City by a woman who ran a human rights uh, defense organization for quite some time. And I had actually met her at, at Yale where I was doing my MBA. I initially just asked her, like, I was like, you seem really cool. I just wanted to share that, you know, we're working on this project and we're taking this approach and I'm curious what you think. And and she was like, you should come to Mexico City and, and meet my colleagues. And I was like, really? Um, and so, you know, even when we entered into that space, I think it's important to say that we didn't sort of show up and think, oh, we're going to launch a partnership with somebody and it's going to look like this. I think at the mm. time it was a... Let's just hear what they have to say about, you know, how the how the deep pain that they experience in the loss of family members. Um, you know, th- these are groups working with disappearances and human rights abuses, um, in kind of the you know, yeah, just just in a lot of sort of really challenging um, social cultural dynamics, um, and just you know how what is it like to be in your shoes and and what are the questions you're asking about about flourishing well-being in your space um what if you, if you could think about healing what would that look like and this this woman who invited us there Sylvia she was incredibly generous and introduced us to lots of different people they took our meetings they shared you know everything they were working on mm-hmm. and introduced us to more people and and so really it was this like very organic um, network development of people who were just incredibly generous with their time mm-hmm. and wanted to share their thoughts on this topic um, with two strangers with very little expectation of, of what would really come out of it but we eventually arrived at the door of um, this organization that uh, was working on a what they were calling a burnout prevention program for human rights defenders. Mm. This uh, this couple that started it, you know, the husband had been working in human rights for over twenty five years. Uh, just really was very familiar with the struggle, um, mm. and so he kind of said, you know what, there needs to be a space for people to come and just kind of heal mm. um, and build some some capacity again to connect with each other, to connect with themselves. Um, And his wife is in sort of the the performing arts. She's a dancer and like was really aware of kind of the the bodily, um, the way the body carries stress, um, particularly Mm. um, things like post-traumatic stress, if that is present, um, you know, just daily, regular, chronic stress of, you know, trying to find people who have gone missing and going down these really dangerous rabbit holes frequently. Mm-hmm. And so they were creating this program. We were just listening to them. We met somebody that they were that they were working with at a t- at the time, a, a journalist who had actually experienced some torture himself and he was sort of sharing that yeah. experience. You know, and then Pablo was like, "So, is there any way that we can we can work with you?" Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind yeah. of a, "Oh, you 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 think we can help you here? Because <laughs> you know, and and there there was this like initial sort of like, well, it, we were taking it in, and they were so generously sharing their stories that mm-hmm. you know we weren't really thinking like, here's what I would do in this situation. It's just you know being fully fully absorbed, and um and so we ended up having many more conversations with them and thinking about how they wanted to build out this program. Then of course like COVID hit not too long after that, and so um. Mm-hmm. They were forced to pause that program for a little bit. But the good news is um, actually they're going to start it up again. So, you know, COVID is a whole other conversation, but um, that's how we ended up in Mexico. And so as these invitations started rolling in, we would sort of try to suss out, you know, 
what is it that they're working on? And was there something real that we could walk with them to co-create? And um, Mm -hmm. what we look for is an alignment in values um, in terms Mm -hmm. of how we, how we see this kind of work. Most of the time we try to make sure that, um, you know, they really want to collaborate, um, that they're Mm -hmm. looking for, you know, something where, you know, we, don't fully join their team, but we are, we work on stuff t- really together, very much together, you know, like sharing the Google doc, writing stuff, commenting, like sending things back and forth. Um, and if they really want that, then um, we've sort of tried to, to take them on. And so because of COVID, um, there have been more people collaborating online. And I'll, I'll say that that's essentially how we ended up also working with partners in India and Malaysia. Um, we would not like, we initially were like, it's Latin America. We're going to go there. You know, we're going to do this sort of like in-person, um, network building, listening, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, uh, COVID hit in March of 2020 and it was just like, nobody's going anywhere, I guess. And so, um, Mm -hmm. it became much more about, um, now, like, how do we build an understanding um, and a collaborative relationship with teams all over the world um, from mm-hmm. our computers? And, um, and you know, I didn't think that people would want that. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, continually in India and in Malaysia, we, again, were, you know, people reached out to us and they said, look, like, we're trying to build this thing. We really mm-hmm. like what you're about. I'm curious if we could work with you. And and so it's really been an honor to get invited into their spaces. And of course, we're hoping mm-hmm. to be able to see them in person someday. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's essentially how we ended up expanding. Wow, that's that's so awesome. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious then, can you kind of guide me through an example of what this, I guess, like partnership looks like then? So like you already mentioned how it's a lot of kind of going back and forth, but can I, I'm, I'm just curious about the details of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I think you can think about it in a couple of different ways. One is uh, we have a community-centered mental health design process that we've <laughs> created for um, working with different groups that are at different levels of developing what they want to create. Um, And Mm. so the entry point might be different along this process, but essentially it starts with um, some kind of needs assessment, some kind of identification of, Mm. you know, where, and we ask the question, where does it hurt? Which really Mm. kind of opens up to not saying like, can you diagnose people with something so that we can Mm. come in with a cure, but more kind of like, you know, where, what does that look like? How is it emerging? Like, how do you know it's there? Um, Because most of the time they want to build something because they feel that they're a need and so mm-hmm. it's helping them to kind of identify and put language to what that is yeah um in that process it it helps also to get people in the community involved it helps them to um you know to share what they would envision um would be helpful for them their families their kids and so um so that's really critical and then there's a design phase where we kind of think through with them, you know, we work with their team, we use tools like Miro, which are sort of these online interactive design uh, platforms, mm-hmm. um, where we're, you know, doing all kinds of things like putting in lots of ideas, you know, like, 
what are some of the big challenges? What are some of the words? Like, what are some of the the main skills or things that um, that you think would help people overcome these challenges that we've heard them share? Mm. Um, and then we kind of do a lot of organizing in that virtual space. And then we sort of say, okay, it sounds like, you know, if you create a program, like these need to be components, or at least these need to be goals, like what kinds of activities would promote those? And we do mm. lots of brainstorming and writing for that. If there's yeah. content creation, that frequently happens. Um, you know, and of course there's a mode of delivery of sort of how, like, who is this for, how would it get to them? And how would we know if they, if they like it, if it's doing what we, what they want it to, what you want it to. Um, and so we do developmental evaluation along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think beyond that point, um, it's really a question of where the organization wants to take it. Um, they, in, in our case in, uh, in India, we worked with them early on in the pandemic to, design um, a well-being program that could be delivered through audio actually on radio um, as a way to reach very rural populations Um, and that was all their idea they wanted to produce it but they weren't quite sure how to organize the content or how to write the content and so we did a lot of design with them my co-founder did a lot of co-writing with their team they produced it and developed supplementary materials and and rolled it out um, mm-hmm. And then we helped them do a pre-post um, analysis to f- to see if there were improvements along the scales that they looking that they were looking for, mm-hmm. and then explained to them like here's you know these are the markers of what was statistically significant like you could see increased emotional regulation, increased emotional awareness, um, reduced stress, um, and so they actually ended up taking that. And bringing it to partner organizations and saying, like, we have this thing, we're getting really great feedback, the people who use it mm-hmm. love it, um, yeah. we could roll it out as a program with you as a partner. And so that's essentially how they got it to um, more and more people. And so, again, it depends on what the partner wants to do with it. Most of the time it's housed in their organization. Mm. We're not part of the actual face-to-face like rollout because that's part of the design is to help their team do it Mm. um and you know they feel very much like it's it's theirs um Mm. uh, because it is and so finally you know this team was able to actually go to local government officials and share um this program as a resource and um from my understanding, the the government is interested in in rolling it out to about 50,000 teachers um, by the end of this year. And so, you know, it can kind of go to this place of big scale. Um, In other cases, you know, it stays within the community, within the organization and where they're kind of like creating in this way um, Mm -hmm. for a set of people. Um, Mm -hmm. So it, it can go a lot of different ways in the end. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, for me, it's just, I especially love the fact that it's not like, um, you know, like people are just being like coming in in parachutes and like, you know, doing their bit and then they leave that kind of thing. Because you see that a lot, unfortunately, in kind of yeah. foreign aid and global mental health is also something that that happens a lot, unfortunately. And so I really like how it's kind of almost like a decolonized approach to healthcare, um, for lack of a better word. It's basically just providing people with whatever they need um that can be the skills or that can be kind of the connections that can be kind of yeah whatever they need to kind of do their own thing I yeah I really really like that and I think that's how that's how most things should work (laughs) yeah and it's it's hard because I think that you know it's 
it's long-term. We have a very long-term vision about um, building, about the mental health skill building um, at the community level. Um, it takes time. And, and I think a lot of the time, with many of these interventions, um, people still think of mental health as like a crisis issue, um, Mm -hmm. which it can be, absolutely. Um, And it's a long-term issue, right? And so, um, you know, even for people who are experiencing mental health diagnoses, it's it's a chronic challenge. Um, The timeline is not short usually. Um, And so, you know, it's also seen as like, you know, if you don't have somebody who is a perfectly trained professional on this model and they bring them in, they do the therapy, they get out. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. that is so common as you were saying. Um, It's much harder to, um, to actually identify the pain points again, to, to talk about language, right. And to sort of say, it's not just me coming in and saying like, I think you're traumatized because you went through this thing and now I have this thing that's going to help you with your trauma. Um, But more about saying like, you know, how, how has your life changed and and in what ways would you like to see your life get better? Mm. Um, you know, since this, this crisis event, um, and, and who would you like to be involved in that? Or, you know, Mm. what would you like to do? And, um, and so frequently because of the disability language, um, it's really hard for the mental health field to get out of this kind of just, um, uh, you know, coping, um, or, you know, like coming in with solutions that have, you know, been, been proven with a randomized control trial somewhere else. And so, yeah, the co-creative process is, is certainly, um, I mean, you know, I think I have a lot of thoughts about sort of the decolonization process. Um, you know, when we decided to work internationally, we were aware that, you know, we are participating in a narrative and, um, even though we are both people of color, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, our citizenship isn't a privilege, um, mm-hmm. you know, our earning potential and the connections that we have. And, you know, I think that for anyone who chooses to work internationally, it's really important to ask that question of, of why. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some folks who I think probably are like, well, you know, Americans should stay in America and Ecuadorians should stay in Ecuador. And, you know, we should all just stay in our own spaces. But I should also, I would also say that as if we want to see ourselves as a global community, we need to find ways of working together that Mm -hmm. are honest about the power dynamics that exist from geopolitics Mm -hmm. um, and also find a way to be led by each other. And, um, and so I think in that international context, it's it's really hard to fight against that narrative of, mm. um, you know, colonial aid or, you know, mm. just the U.S. like is a place where you get money, um, which is, is actually true for a lot yeah. of folks. Um, yeah. But, you know, how do you still collaborate um, despite that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to hear your opinion on like, what are some of the things you have had to kind of stop yourself from doing or remind yourself while you're kind of working in a foreign context then? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, when we first started, uh, you know, like any startup, you kind of run around pitching your idea and mm-hmm. uh, to, to anyone who will listen. And, um, and there's a lot of, uh, oh, like that's not possible. And, you know, I, I had somebody from, a philanthropic organization say to me like oh you can't trust the locals to carry this out um wow. like you you have to do it and we're like um 
I kind of just stared at them. (laughs) I was like, oh. uh, I wouldn't even know how to respond. (laughs) Wow. um, And yeah, anyway, so, so there was, there was definitely that on this side of things. And, Mm -hmm. and this question of like, you know, how are you going to make sure that people are doing this the right way? I think that is very frequently the question, right? Because there is this like, well, you've developed this model. There needs to be fidelity to the model. If they don't do it right, then it won't work. Um, I think intellectually that argument is valid. Um, However, I think there's also this this misunderstanding of what happens in that process of co-creation and ownership, um, where it's sort of like, well, actually, it's not ours. And so we are going to be affected and affecting and not controlled and controlling. Um, So I refuse to be controlled by any funder that is telling me to be controlling of our partners. Sort of like, I'm sorry, that's not what we're doing. That's not the story we're telling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that means it's harder to get funding, well, fine. Um, you know, it's just that we're not going to do things that way. Um, I think on the ground, I, yeah, I mean, like I have learned a lot. I think there's been times when, um, you know, you can come in and also make the mistake the other direction where it's kind of like, I'm just here to sit quietly and absorb and listen and say nothing. Um, Cause then you're just a lump on a log and they're kind of like, um, can you, can you help? Like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And so it's really to kind of find a way to build that trust to say, uh, we defer to you as experts in the local context, in what you need, in the way that you would want to deliver something, in what would feel like a healing space for the people that you love and care about. Um, what we're bringing is a thought process to help you kind of get there, to think about the the ecosystem, to think about sustainability, mm-hmm. um, to to figure out you know what language you would want to use, and you know more frequently than I had expected, um, people actually wanted our advice on things, and and I think that's where you know pausing a lot and saying um, well here's what I see. Um, you know, and, and here's, here are different ways in which I've seen that play out in other contexts. Does that resonate with you? And, and asking a lot of what do you think? How does that strike you? Um, you know, tell me if like, I'm understanding this correctly. Um, Mm -hmm. doing that a lot more frequently than you would maybe in somebody whose context is, is the same as yours. Um, Mm -hmm. and so one thing that we've learned, learned is that, asking good questions is almost all of the value. (laughs) Um, Being able to um, help the truth emerge or help like these perspectives emerge naturally um, where the person we're working with is the one coming up with, you know, all of the ideas. Mm -hmm. um, We're kind of paving the way and kind of helping them like, okay, let's look at this and like, let's kind of move things around um, to see how, what that looks like, you know? Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. That's really cool. You must have learned so much throughout this whole process already. What would you say would be kind of the most important lesson so far? Wow. Yes, you are totally right. I've learned a lot. Um, something that I've been thinking about, um, again, is is a little bit akin to what I was saying earlier about, you know, thinking big is really important and also recognizing that you know, at the end of the day, um, this is an expression of our values. 
Um, it's us bringing, you know, our best resources, our abilities, um, and our care to something that we really care about. And it's not necessarily a, um, you know, because as soon as you sort of get like, we're going to hit 10 million people, but it, you know, it kind mm. of gets away from you. Um, and it, it becomes this, this almost this mission in like a, um, an oppressive way. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. And so uh, having like a healthy dose of learning and humility and defining success as not the number of people that you meet or the number of, you know, statistically significant results you get or like whatever it is that you're trying to um, to prove mm-hmm. and to say this is a, a creative collective expression of of our values and, and we're doing it alongside people who care about the same thing and it feels a lot my, a lot more like art and maybe a little bit kind of intangible in that sense mm-hmm. um, but it maintains that level of, of humility um, in the process oh and and to that effect um, it's easier to release the control um, when yeah. Um, when you're sort of saying, well, success is defined by doing something meaningful and helpful and welcome um, that is, you know, leveraging like my abilities um, and in line with my values versus um, success is accomplishing like this really concrete thing for this number of people and et cetera. I think those measures of success can be useful at times, but if we are motivated only by them, that's when you get controlling yeah yeah for sure it's when everything gets reduced down to numbers (laughs) yeah 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 that's really true that's really true so we kind of we hinted a little bit at the pandemic as well I want to I'm I'm kind of curious that how did the pandemic affect some of the communities you were working closely with Mm. um to be honest it's been really difficult um Mm. for for all of them um yeah we are actually, you know, surprised that there all of these organizations have made it. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they haven't closed their doors. That um, nobody on their team has passed away from COVID, even while communities around them have have certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that it's really challenging for a local organization that is on the front lines to not switch to crisis response. Um, and so, and and what we saw, um, you know, we saw kind of a divergence. We saw some folks closing and just trying to use their, um, you know, WhatsApp or, or whatever to stay in touch with their um, program participants, with their communities, um, just kind of locked down and, and didn't do a lot of um, of work, um, mostly because like many of these programs are done in person. And so, you know, depending on their local protocols and safety and things like that. Yeah. Others uh, switched to crisis response in the sense that, you know, they might be, for example, our partners in Ecuador became a food distribution center. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not yeah. really the core of what they do. Um, but that's what they were able to offer and families, you know, they weren't able to sell at the market or they weren't able to go to work. And so really, you know, like, um, the families were experiencing pretty intense food shortages. And so, you know, this organization would get donated food from, um, local supermarkets and whatnot, and just like hand out the food, you know, and then there were some, you know, for example, the, the India, uh, one of our partners in India actually reached out to us during the pandemic and said, we're trying to build this well-being radio thing. We're delivering other things through radio. We'd love to co-write something with you. 
so it, it hit them pretty differently. And, and I'll say that the same team found themselves among many civil society organizations in India looking for oxygen tanks um, around April, May. Um, and so they also became a, a bit of a crisis response organization. Um, you know, they're not it, it, like they're not built to find oxygen tanks like that is yeah, they're an education yeah. systems organization, not, you know, um, a crisis like PPE organization. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. many of them you know, because they're on the front lines and because civil society plays the role it does um, in their context, they really felt like they had to step in. And, um, and you know, it's, it's both incredibly heroic and heartbreaking, um, I think, to see that, to sort of, to realize, you know, like, that narrative of, if I don't show up, nobody will, um, mm. can be both really motivating and, and kind of oppressive. I think there's this, you know, there's this feeling of, you know, when, when you really buy into that narrative of like, I'm doing this completely alone, mm-hmm. um, one, it can be it, very isolating. Um, and two, it can actually tap into a, a local, I don't want to say savior complex, but it taps into that martyr, a martyrdom posture that, yeah. um, that can make this work yeah. really quite difficult and unsustainable. Um, and so, you know, this isn't, you know, COVID crisis is not really the time to say it, but for all social impact organizations, including the ones that we work with, we try to help them also think about like, what would it mean to include yourself um, mm. in this like healing and flourishing you're trying to bring about for, for everybody else, right? And, yeah. um, and, you know, I think crisis situations shouldn't be an exception, but it does make it much more difficult. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So then like, I mean, How's the situation now then? Like, are we kind of transitioning out of the crisis situation and kind of emergency mode? Um, it depends on the context. Um, I know that Malaysia, actually, I think they just locked down again. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. you know, they've had these movement control orders and um, it's been, yeah, lots of lots of ups and downs, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. The vaccine rollout is pretty uneven across these different regions. Um yeah. And even then, you know, for example, I didn't mention our partners in Peru, but the kids are going to be doing school virtually for another year, it looks like, um, which is just really wild because it's not like a lot of these families have um, good internet connection. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, the way that each government is handling it presents um, a wide range of challenges. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, how do you then plan for things? <laughs> I'm curious because, I mean, it's kind of everything is so uncertain. So then, like, what what do you do? <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, I, I will definitely share it is it's a challenge. Um, and I think with with any sort of, you know, we call it partnership like others might call it, you know, call them our clients. Um, We think we do a lot of work alongside them, so it doesn't feel like a client relationship. But, you know, even consulting companies have, have, you know, oversold their services and now they're really short on labor, right? Mm -hmm. um, And so I think that managing your flow, managing your own workforce and the capacity of the teams you're working with is part of how this is really challenging. And and I would say that even if we, you know, say we established a Brio 
uh, office in like every country we want to work, which by the way is not what we're doing. But even if we did and we had our own staff and our own funding, they would still be very much vulnerable to the dynamics um, that are going on locally. Um, and so, you know, I think one thing is like when we think about um, about risk of, uh, you know, too much activity, too much demand at once, or like no demand at all, or, you know, like too many things that partners are asking us for all at once <laughs> um, versus nobody talking to us. Um, I used to think that was going to be a really big problem when we had um, only a couple of partners. Um, we, I was really riding the ups and downs with them. Mm. And, um, you know, just especially at the time when we couldn't, we were really trying to figure things out. Um, it was kind of like, is this like, is this thing going to completely tank my career? Um, because, you know, we're riding like the up and down of like, you know, several government officials and, you know, the community organizer and the, you know, whatever. Um, but now that, you know, there's, there's multiple groups, there's, there's more of a rhythm that's kind of um, flowing and we have a rhythm of meeting with people. So even if the lockdowns are really tough, um, there's still a lot that they're working on, a lot that they want um, support with. And, and I think that's when the leadership support really comes in. Build their capacity and make sure they're doing well and thinking about internal team stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, best of luck from here. Yeah, I really hope it'll, yeah, I really hope this year will kind of turn around for the better, but we'll see, hey? Yeah, yeah, we hope so too. I mean, it's, um, we, I think, we always knew that COVID is going to have a very long tail, especially for um, lower resource areas. And mm. um, and so I think in, in some ways we are mentally taking that into account, um, mm. even as, you know, wealthier countries are opening up and, yeah. um, you know, who knows for how long. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely part of the unpredictability. Mm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I just, I have kind of one last question <laughs> um yeah let's say let's say there isn't COVID um if COVID like was no longer a thing what do you envision Brio to look like in maybe five years so like as in maybe like we actually say goodbye to, <laughs> to COVID as like a <laughs> as a sort of endemic yeah um yeah I mean I think we, I think talking about vision is still very valid um there's a couple things that we would love to do. I think one is um, expand. Well, we would love to grow our team um, of people who can run these partnerships, um, really walk alongside our partners and meet the needs that they have and continue to build initiatives. Um, we would love to work with more um, more partners, more organizations in more different kinds of regions. Um, part of it is just that it's super fun. And at this point, um, I'll just share that there are more people who have actually wanted to work with us than we've been able to say yes to. And so we know that there are more people in more countries that are interested in, in how we're doing things and, and what that would mean for their team. And unfortunately, we've had to say, not right now. Uh, we, mm. we can't serve you um, as well if we take you on right now. And so so certainly to meet that need um, and also to think about ways in which um, we can help leaders in similar regions actually connect with each other. So we've been kind of playing mm. with like a, a cohort model, um, you know, an opportunity for different kinds of community organizations to 
um, undergo an experience together to create something um, and Mm -hmm. to compare notes and to sort of have a sense of peer leadership and and peer support. we are speak in conversations with larger organizations that are maybe also internationally um, oriented. So they have mm-hmm. lots of locations in different places um, and being able to design initiatives alongside them or their staff. Um, and so most of it will continue to be this kind of collaborative, co-created like community-centered process. Um, I think that's just really core to what we do. Um, but, you know, there's so many different ways that you could apply that posture in that process. So I'm hoping to, yeah, just like work in a, an even wider range of, of regions and types of organizations. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm super excited to see where it can go from here as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're on this journey together then. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I mean, kind of related to that, how can we then kind of just the listeners out there and just a lay person, how can we then support Brio? Well, um, you know, we are working on building our con- our communication of what we're doing. Um, it's We're a really small team right now. And so like anytime you see something on a social media or um, that goes out to our email list, which you should definitely sign up for because you get letters from me. I personally write them (laughs) because there's no one else to write them. Um, But also, you know, because it's like a space where I share with like a handful of of folks just about, you know, what we're learning, um, the various Mm. insights and things that you might be able to take into your context. And so, um, yeah, definitely follow us on social media, sign up for our email list. Um, we'll also be sharing different opportunities as they come up to that email list. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably going to be the best way to follow our work. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for that then. And thank you so much for this entire chat. I feel like I've learned a lot. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It was it's so lovely to, to chat with you and, and I hope it'll be um, encouraging for your listeners. Um, I am pretty easy to find. So if anyone is interested in chatting more, hearing more about our work, um, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or um, you can go through our website as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Love this project and this podcast. Such such interesting folks to be among. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I have loved making it. Check out the links in this episode's description to follow Daisy and to follow Brio's growth as they expand to different vulnerable communities around the world. In two weeks, we're speaking to a charity from New Zealand which gives children with disabilities or terminal illnesses a trip of a lifetime. So make sure you're subscribed so you'll know when it's out. I hope you'll stay safe and healthy and see you in two weeks.